This is the England Rugby Game Developers Podcast. The Game Developers Podcast series is here to support the England Rugby Developer Workforce with our training course delivery to referees, coaches and volunteers. In this series, we'll have in-depth discussions about topics related to our training courses that we hope in turn will have a positive impact on your tutoring. I'm David Fraser, Training and Workforce Development Manager at England Rugby. In this, the first of two episodes of the Game Developers podcast where I talk to Doug Lemov, we discuss using modelling in our course delivery. Doug is an author, a former teacher and school principal, and he helped to found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. His books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into a dozen languages. During the conversation, you'll hear us discuss Doug's Teach Like a Champion blog. You'll find a link to it in the podcast information. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Doug Lemov is a former teacher and school principal and helped to found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. He's the author of a number of books, including Teach Like a Champion, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, and Practice Perfect. His books have sold over a million copies and have been translated into a dozen languages, and he describes himself as the worst soccer player of the decade at his college. Uh, There's much about Doug's messaging that resonates with how we deliver England rugby training courses and lots to learn about how we, as course designers and tutors, can be more effective in how we support coaches, referees, and other volunteers to learn. I'm delighted that Doug has joined us today, and we're going to focus this conversation on how we model with impact to support learners on our coaching and refereeing courses. So, Doug, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm happy to be here, and I love the topic that you've chosen, modeling. It's uh, it's important and easy to overlook. So, yeah, great. So, it might be help. It might be helpful to first set the context in which we use modeling on our courses. So, as I said, we train referees and coaches at all levels. And particularly with novices in these roles, on courses, we will often use very deliberate modeling to show them what good practice should look like and then give them opportunities to imitate the model and receive feedback on their coaching and refereeing so they can develop their understanding of those topics. There are some very specific areas of our training that relate to player safety, such as coaching and refereeing, the tackle and scrum, where modeling forms a significant element of the way we train participants. There's a really good chapter in your book, Practice Perfect, where you discuss the power of modeling via a series of rules. And I wanted to ask you about some of these rules in the context of the work that we do at England Rugby. Um, so I'll kick off. In one of your rules, you talk about model and describe, yeah. where you suggest using modeling to help learners replicate and use description to help them understand. Could you tell us a little bit more about this, please? Yeah. Well, the, f- the first thing I've, I think I'd want to say is just the power. It's important to recognize the power of modeling, that uh, most of what we learn in our lives, we learn by seeing someone else do it and copying it. Uh, and so maybe we're slightly less attentive to it because we're often less intentional about it. Um, you know, we set up courses to talk to people about things, but actually a lot of what people learn is through modeling. So I think it's you know, you talked about just the intentionality with which you use modeling in your courses. And I think that that instantly warms the cockles of my heart because, uh, you know, one of the things we, we often talk about with 
teachers and school leaders in, in school settings is, you know, and, and I would say with coaches too, is how often the model or the demonstration is a bit of an afterthought. So just to put this in like a football setting, uh, we're talking to players about, uh, you know, what it looks like to receive a ball across your body with the back foot and snap your hips open. And we'll say, great, Co you know, coach, uh, coach David, will you show them what that looks like? Right. And so there, you know, the model is profoundly important. One of the things we know about the model is that people are probably, people are going to probably copy things in the model without even realizing it. And now I've asked you to sort of impromptu model it without thinking in advance of like, what do I want to look like? What does a great model look like? Where do I want, what do I want people's attention? Where do I want it to be focused? So modeling is, is incredibly powerful and it deserves as much planning and preparation as any other type of, any of the other things that we do in teaching. But I think that it's, you know, like <clears throat> human attention, what people are paying attention to is, is a tricky, tricky phenomenon. Attention is a driver of what, of what people learn in almost any setting. But I think that's why language is so important, which is what I tell people to think about um, while I'm modeling directs their attention. One of the sort of uh, key, key bodies of knowledge that I think people who are in the learning professions should know is something called cognitive load theory. Uh, which is sort of how working memory and long-term memory interact. Um, and, uh, uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I just lost my train of thought for a second. I'm just gonna, um, try, oh, uh, and one of the things that, that cognitive scientists who talk about working memory talk about is a work, the power of a worked example, which is I show you what it looks like, but I explain to you what's happening and maybe what I'm thinking about and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So you process more of it. So having like, a, you know, I would say it's like having an annotated example of a math or a science solution. I show you what the solution looks like to so have a really clear image of it, but I also understand the why behind it. So I can begin to think about how, it, how I might adapt it and when I might use it. So I just think this power of like words and picture together is a, is a, it's, it's a powerful combination. Yeah, great. And, and you touched on something there about yeah, intentionality and <clears throat> Uh, helping people to notice uh, uh, effectively. In, in your call your shots rule, you explain it, how important it is that we tell those we are modeling to what yeah. to look for. Uh, how, how does this work and why is it important? Yeah, people will pay attention to the darndest things when they don't know what they're supposed to pay attention to. Yeah. So, you know, I know you're a, you're a former teacher as well, but oftentimes, you know, when I was the head of a school, we would send a, you know, a new teacher in to watch a a veteran teach and they would go watch and we'd be like, great, you know, you watched Mr. Fraser teach. What do you, what do you, what do you think? And, you know, what did you notice? And sometimes people would notice the things that you want them to notice, but sometimes they would say, oh, you know, like, it's incredible. Like the way, you know, his bulletin boards and his classroom were, you know, like that is on the, on a list of the 30 things I was hoping you would take away from observing a master at work. You know, you noticed number 27, <laughs> number 27 and 23. And so just saying like something like during a model, like pay attention to, uh, you know, like, let's say you're modeling the behavior of a referee, pay particular attention to his body language and his tone of voice when he's interacting or pay particular attention to the way he positions himself to see the ruck better, right? Just drawing people's attention they're going to, people are going to learn from what they look at. And so I want to direct their eyes to the most productive places so that they don't miss the key, the key parts of the model. So I think very, you know, right before you model, very quick thing, 
directing people pitches for something to, to guide their attention, I think is, you know, you get a lot more out of your models that way. And so on a course, we would have potentially 24 uh, people training, training to be a coach and a number of tutors. And we might have one of our tutors leading the modeling session. And we've got two or three other tutors working with some of those coaches or referees who are watching the modeling and they're directing them to, to notice specific things. Is that what you're referring to there? Yes. And I think some people, sometimes people are uncomfortable with that because they think that it infringes on the learning of the recipient. But actually, I don't think that that's true, that all I'm doing is, you know, in fact, if I direct your attention, I can ask you questions more productively. So if I say, pay attention to, uh, pay attention to body language and tone of voice, and afterwards I'll ask you what you notice, then I can say, great, what do you notice about attention and about body language and, and, uh, and tone of voice? And everyone was looking for it, right? So we're all having a conversation about the same thing as opposed to like, you know, everyone, if everyone is looking at something different and someone makes a really insightful comment about the, about the demonstrator's body language, half the people didn't see it in the room. So it, it, actually, it actually, I think, telling them what to look for is not telling them what to see. It just directs attention to the most productive places. And then I think questioning is actually more powerful um, when you, when we're all sort of focused on a similar, on a similar topic. And then I can really ask, I can ask insightful conversations and our discussion about is likely to be more productive and more efficient. Yeah. Great. Um, why is it more important to model in a, a context that's similar as possible to the one in which the learner is going to go and perform? Well, how, how does that help a learner? Yeah, well, I think there are a couple, a couple of ways that why, a couple of reasons why that's so important. And one is I think, you know, uh, it, it gives me a mental model of what it, of what it looks like. And, you know, I think, I think one of the things that another sort of misgiving maybe that people think that people have about modeling is that I'm, you know, you, you said that oftentimes we ask people to imitate or copy models as a first move. And I actually love that. And I don't think that that is demeaning or limiting to people at all. You know, if you go to name the famous art gallery in the, in the, in the, the you go to the national gallery sometimes on a Tuesday morning, you will see aspiring painters copying the works of the master, trying to recreate the works of the masters. And what they are doing when they're copying it, they're not intending to create slavish copies of the masters for the rest of their lives. They are seeking to understand what they do and how they do it by doing it themselves. And when they understand that, it helps them to understand brushstrokes and tone uh, and, 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 you know, and material selection and, and angle and foreshortening, and then they apply it on their own. But there's this Japanese proverb that I love, which is the the disciple says to the master, master, why do we do it this way? And the master says, do it 10,000 times and you will understand that sometimes you have to understand by doing it. And so um, the more we can place the model in the context, I one, the better I remember it when I go out to do it myself, right? State dependent learning. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm standing in front of a rock practicing it, I'm going to be more likely to remember it when I'm standing in front of a rock. But I also have more understanding of the decision of, of, of why this mod, why this, this model of execution in this situation then, and then when I have a mental model, I can then make decisions about how to adapt it and apply it. 
So I think, I think it helps to, it helps people to understand context and the visual cues. You know, what are the things that are happening around this model that determine the way this model is different from one we saw before and the next one that we'll see. So I think always situating it in, in context is, is powerful for learners. Uh, thank you for that. Um, you talk about another one of your rules. You call it super modeling. Yeah. Could, you, could you tell us what that, uh, what you mean by that, please? Yeah, it's a funny name. What my, my co-author, Katie Ezzy, came up with, with that one, I think, for Practice Perfect. And I think it, we use it to describe the idea that um, this is, I think, particularly for trainers, which is when you're training a group of coaches or referees and you want to, and you want to have them experience many of the things that you, are, that you want them to do, you don't just want to talk about it, you want to have them experience it. So if I'm talking to a group of coaches about questioning, say, and how powerful it can be to, to ask players questions in training, I don't just want to tell them that and explain it. I actually want that. I want to use the same tools myself. So they experience being a learner and being in a, in a setting where the questioning is exciting and dynamic and lights their mind on fire. And so the idea of supermodeling is, um, you know, I, I, I assume that, you know, in one of our conversations, we'll talk about this idea of ratio, which is, um, one of the keys to a great learning environment is whether everyone is actively participating in answering questions of, of merit and substance. And if it's the same two or three people answering the questions all the time and half the people are sort of checked out and uh, marginally attentive, it's not going to be productive for them. And so if I want to tell people that that's what they should do for their players, they should feel it in my meeting session. And I should start, we often talk when we're training, let's say school leaders, to do a training for their teachers, right? Within the first three minutes, everyone should be actively engaged in answering a question that they can engage but not resolve. And they should see everyone else in the room discussing that question as well. So they get this sort of social signal that this is an engaged environment. So we would say like in the first three minutes, you know, um, put up a video of a referee refereeing a match in which he does something really interesting, pause the video and say, you know, what did you like about what the referee did here? What was effective that you think you can borrow 30 seconds to talk to your partner? Go, right? Then they have a dynamic conversation with a partner and then you come out of it and you call call and say, great, what was, what was two of the things that you noticed? Stuart, what'd you notice? Sarah, what'd you notice? Um, and I'm modeling here the thing that I want people, that I'm hoping that people will do with their learners. And again, like people, people learn by watching as much as they learn by hearing and having it explained for them. So... It's an application of that idea, I guess, as well. So it links back into your earlier messaging about how important seeing and copying mm -hmm. is. Yeah, it's fascinating. Can I, if I could just like just tell you, I hope I'm not going off off uh, off trail here, but no, go one, of the, one of the most interesting things that happened to us. So the book Practice Perfect came from you know 15 years ago or so. My colleagues and I started to do training for teachers. And the idea behind the training for teachers was that we were going to ask people to practice, that if you wanted people to walk into the classroom and ask better questions, they should practice asking better questions in the workshop four or five times so that when they walked out on, walked into the classroom, they were doing it for the first time. Um, and, you know, people looked at us like we were crazy at first, but they tried it and they found it helpful. But we found that they practiced much better if we always did a model beforehand, right? We're practicing, we're going to show you what it looks like, what your practice is going to look like. My colleague Eric and I are going to model it here. And so let's say we were working on the idea of cold calling, which is calling out people whether or not we, they've raised their hands. 
we might prep a model. And one of the things we noticed as soon as people started to practice is that they would start doing things that were in the model, whether we had talked about them or not. So if, um, if my colleague Erica, you know, used a phrase like, hmm, get us started, please, or smiled while she was cold calling to show that she was supportive of students, even if, uh, even if we hadn't talked about that in the training, people would often start doing it. And so what we realized is that we should plan our models. And we actually made, when we do a workshop, we have a, we have a sheet that we put together. We list all the models that we're going to do and we prepare like what, what is the, what is the shot we want to call? What's the most important thing we want to call people's attention to, but what are some other key things we want to just embed in the model? Because, um, because over time people will start using <laughs> what, what you, uh, what you do in front of them, you know, they'll, they'll copy what you present to them. So we to be intentional about those things. Um, and when we're training, say, a novice coach or a novice referee uh, to, to referee or coach a tackle, it seems like a, a useful first step for that person to imitate that model exactly. And we would want to encourage that. So w- why would that work? Yeah. We'll get to, to go back to this idea of the painters, right? Imitation is a great way to just... Um, it's a great starting point. I start with I start with a relatively successful version of execution. I build a vision of what good looks like. It doesn't mean I'm not going to change it and adapt it and apply it, um, but it, uh, it makes sure that I start at a, in a productive place. Um, and again, just internalizing all the, the idea of copying helps me to internalize a lot of the things that I don't even realize that I'm internalizing. So. I, th- I think what a cognitive scientist would say, cognitive scientists would describe a, a model slightly different than I think that we're talking about it here. And they would say that a mental model, which is a clear picture in your head of what effective execution looks like, is one of the most important things for anyone who has to make, who has to make decisions and execute in a complex setting. So, um, you know, athletes use this all the time, right? Have a picture in my head of what it looks like to receive a ball across my body with my, you know, uh, and snap my hips open. And I, get that from watching players in the Premier League do it over and over again. And when I have that mental model, it helps me to make decisions and adaptations. And so what I'm, I think when I ask someone to imitate, I'm starting, I'm starting them off at an effective mental model. And I think the other thing that I do is it, it's a really easy starting point. After you model things for some people, sometimes sometimes people will want to talk about it and they'll be like, well, I can't really do that because you know this wouldn't work for me. And I want people to reflect on the models that they give them, but I want them to reflect on the models after they try them, right? And like, I couldn't, I I would never be able to do it that way because we'll try it first and see, because it might surprise you. And so I think that um just asking someone to imitate, let's just start by imitating is a really easy entry point so that I get people to do it first and then reflect. That's one of the things we write about in the book, which is like, do it first, then, then reflect on it as opposed to like reflect first before you've even tried it. So, um, so I think it's, it gives you a bit of a, uh, easy entry point. And would it follow that in say a classroom setting that you're used to, uh, a pupil seeing fellow pupils, um, model what the teacher has done, would they learn from seeing their peers do uh, model activities, model um, uh, what the teacher has done? 
would that would that translate into a, a coaching course or a refereeing course where a course participant would learn from the tutor, but they would also learn from observing what other participants on the course do? Yes, definitely. So they get, um, and that has both, a, I think, both a social and a learning aspect to it, which is if I want to get people comfortable with the idea of practicing, which is so important to any performance profession and coaching and refereeing are performance professions. You do them live and you can't, you can't hit pause and go back and fix it. If you, if you don't like what you said, um, I want to normalize the idea of practice. And so one of the things that I, you know, if I see my colleagues practicing, it normalizes it for me. And if the, if the trainer in the room says, great, take 30 seconds with one partner and just and practice having this interaction. Imagine that you're a referee and the player says X to you and you have to respond. Try that, go. Um, if I want people to get comfortable with the idea of rehearsal, like seeing the whole, our whole room full of 30 people all doing it says to me, I should be doing it too, right? This is, this is, uh, this is normal and productive and uh, sells me on the concept. So there's a social phenomena to it. But then also, um, you know, I'm learning from all of those other models around me. And I think that that has mostly benefits and some, and some cautions, which is now I see, now I have a varied model, right? I've seen lots of different applications of a common idea. And so I can pick up little things from watching other people, things I want to do, things I don't want to do. I also should be aware that like, if, if trainees in a workshop are seeing really poor models, you know, that's a problem also. So I often like to start with a really high level model, uh, either, you know, some, someone in the room doing a high level model just to kind of set the bar and then everyone starts practicing and hopefully I'm more likely to be seeing lots of good models and a few, and a few models where I'm like, Oh, that didn't, that didn't work. You know, I want to, I think I tried a different way. Uh, but yeah, ideally it's a great way to foster peer to peer learning. And you talked about an interesting thing there where we will see on courses um, incorrect models, <laughs> but uh, I'm assuming that people can learn from seeing an incorrect model as well if they're yeah. then shown the correct model uh, after that. Yes. Um, so I think I think one of the key things to do is like is to give feedback and improve yeah. models. So we often might do that for like if we. We typically might start a workshop by having, you know, let's say we present a case, everyone models it, they model it in twos or threes around the room. So sort of everyone is practicing. We might then have them model for them and then say, um, pause. One of the things we're noticing as we watch you practice is um, too much talking. There's too much verbiage. And one of the key things to this interaction is to say, is to have economy of language and say slightly less to the player that you're interacting with. So go back, try it again, and see if you can say it with half as many words this time around. Or we might actually do close and gross. So we might say, you know, oh, one of the things we're seeing is really great body language and, you know, uh, relaxed but authoritative. You know, uh, Kevin had a great example of that. See if you can build that into your model now. Um, and in fact, one thing we might say is um, if, let's say, people are modeling in pairs, we might give the observer a signal that they can send to the person who's modeling to give them feedback on their model. So we might say something like, great, our goal in the second round is to, is to have the same conversation in half as many words with economy of language. If you get the sense that your partner is talking a little bit too much, that they could do it with fewer words, just make this signal, you know, and then they'll know they should go back and try it over again and do it with, do it with fewer words. And so kind of empowering people to signal that feedback to, uh, to their partners. 
Thanks for that. Um, there's obviously there are more complex skills that we need to train coaches and and referees to be able to perform. Um, uh, you talk about modeling them one step at a time and, and you use a shoe tying analogy when, yeah. when you reference this in, in, in the book. Can you, can you tell us why that works? You use, you know, modeling complex one, one step at a time rather than all at the same time. Yeah. I think, you know, just to go back to this, this idea that I mentioned previously, cognitive load theory, cognitive load theory one tells us that working memory, which is, thinking that you're conscious that you're doing is the human superpower, right? Um, our greatest capacity is our, our ability to concentrate on something and to think about it with depth and insight. But working memory, even though it's our superpower, it has some, uh, it has, you know, some, it has an, it has several Achilles heels, like any superhero, it has some weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses of working memory is that it's incredibly small and you can really focus on one idea at a time. And if you try to focus on too many things at a time, you uh, begin to get you people either forget things or they degrade they you degrade their performance or they uh, they their perception is degraded because you use working memory to perceive the environment. So a classic example of this, like in a in a f- football setting, that I think might resonate with with your coaches is Lena. Let's say I'm I'm teaching a group of players to build out of the back, and I say pause when we're building out of the back the ball the ball needs to be struck at pace it needs to be on the ground and it needs to be struck to the back foot and when we're receiving the ball our eyes need to be up we need to receive the ball across our body and we need to be looking for gaps in the defense outside backs and we need to press high and make sure we're putting pressure on the opposition uh, so that we can so we can find gaps and gaps in their uh in their shape go right I've just assuming that everything i just told my players there is correct i've just told them six things to try and do and if I tell them six things to try and execute, that's more than they can concentrate on. It's more than they can look for. Uh, they're likely to actually start to struggle to execute or to practice, you know, and, and, to, and to not be successful at any of those one steps. So when I'm asking people to learn something new and focus on something, that having them start to do it in, in small pieces and then building it back up together with complex, building it back to a more complex model over time is helpful. So I was thinking when you asked this question about, I'm a neophyte at the game of rugby, though I love it, about how complex the referee's job when they're looking at a ruck is. And you, there's so many things you have to look for, right? You have to look for um, whether players are entering the ruck from the side and you have to look at whether, you know, whether the player trying to jackal is, you know, on the, there's so many things to look for at once. If I was going to try and train people to do that, I think I'd want to start by just saying first, not, the first time we watch, let's just practice watching rucks for observing for whether the entry was, you know, the entry is from the side or through the back. Is that what you'd say? Or the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Through the, we call it the gate, but you're right. Through the gate, whether it's through the gate. And then maybe I'd focus on, uh, you know, the release, whether the release happened and then, the, you know, the position of the potential jacklers. So that would be sort of what I would describe as blocked practice, which I'm just going to practice looking for those things effectively and building my model of what right and wrong are. And I think if I'm trying to build a model of like right and wrong of six different things at once, it's going to be really hard for people. So I want to start with like, I'm going to break it apart into different, in a different series of observations. And then over time, 
I'm going to start as, as people have a really clear vision of, okay, I have a vision in my head of what it means to what it looks like consistently to, uh, to enter through the gate, you know, now I'm going to start giving them the challenge of looking for three or four things at once, but they have to be things that they know really well. So that would be an, I think an example of a time I'd like to, I want to like break things apart into, you know, skinny parts, small things. And when they get mastery of the small things, then putting them together, um, and, uh, making, having it, be a more complex model. Yeah, well, there's been some great insight there, Doug, into modeling, and, and there's some fantastic things that we can take from that. So thank you very much for that. Um, we we work, as I said at the start, we work with novices right up to professional coaches and referees, but I think all of us, everyone working in, those, in every environment will take something from that. Um, it feels like on the surface it's a really simple and obvious concept, but you know, the depths that you've just talked about it at shows that there's a lot to think about if we're going to help learners take those lessons really effectively on a course. So, so I can't thank you enough for that. Um, I, I mentioned your book, Practice Perfect, where listeners could read more about modeling. Uh, where else could people find out more about your work, please? Yeah, thanks. Um, I have a I have a website. It's called teachlikeachampion.org, and uh, and I blog there. So I I offer reflections and videos often about either teaching or coaching. Uh, and then I have a <clears throat> I have a slightly newer book about about the world of coaching, which is called Coach's Guide to Teaching. You can also get that at uh, your local bookshop, hopefully. Um, and I think that you know adds a a series of topics that might be really interesting both for coaches and referees, especially I think around the role of perception and how important perception is to decision-making. So, um, so those are some places, some things that might be useful as folks are interested in finding more. Great. And we'll put a link to your blog in the, in the notes with this, uh, podcast. So Doug, thanks again for your time and thank you for listening to the Ingham Rugby Game Developers podcast. Thanks for having me on.